murder, divorce, drugs. Our courts are full of stories, scary, sad, and hilarious. Most are tales stranger than fiction. These are true law stories, brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com, the ultimate resource for customer and client video stories. Welcome back to True Law Stories. I'm Ian Garlic, and today we've got some crazy, crazy fun stories about, we've got one about Rose McGowan's legal troubles. We've got one about a pretty crazy Korean story and another story revolving not directly about Jeffrey Epstein and uh, some other things going on there. Uh, but before we get started with Natalie Harris, uh, we are going to, the, don't forget this is brought to you by videocasestory.com. One of the best ways to promote your business and your law firm is through your client stories, not testimonials. Go to videocasestory.com to learn more about collecting, crafting, and delivering video case stories of your clients. All right. Natalie Harris from Baron Harris Healy. Thank you for joining us here on True Law Stories. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Natalie's already got points in my book because she went to school in Wisconsin. From grew up in Wisconsin, so she can't be bad. Uh, <laughs> so Natalie, before we get started with your stories, tell me a little bit about what you do at, at Baron Harris Healy because it's interesting. Sure, we uh, refer to ourselves as a media law boutique. So our clients um, are anyone in media. So journalists, broadcast stations, radio stations, magazine podcasters, and uh, on the commercial side, advertising agencies and other digital companies. And we basically um, help them vet their content for legal risks so they don't publish or broadcast anything out in the world that is gonna land them in court. And if they fail to consult us on the front end and they are uh, served with a lawsuit arising from something that they put out in the world, like copyright, defamation, uh, invasion of privacy, right of publicity, we defend those kind of cases in court for the defamation cases, usually on uh, First Amendment grounds. Gotcha. And um, so tell me a little bit about, I mean, obviously everyone vets their content and make sure it's not going to cause any lawsuits ahead of time but actually they <laughs> don't is, but they should <laughs> they should <laughs> um what what are you know what do you see as content producers biggest misconceptions about their content uh you know what just a real easy one low-hanging fruit hopefully i can save someone a lawsuit on this is sort of use of photos for people who use um, still photos and video in their work, whatever it is they're doing, there's a, sometimes a misconception that if it's sort of out there on the internet, it's yours to use. Um, the idea that the public domain is the same as publicly available, and that's just plain not true. So if you're using um, a video or a photo or an extended piece of text, something that somebody else created that you don't own, unless you have permission from them to use it, there's a good chance that you're violating copyright law unless it falls into certain exceptions. One's known as fair use, and a lot of times people will say, oh, it's just fair use. It's, I'm just using it for myself or just to kind of illustrate my story. And again, fair use is a pretty tough defense to assert, and it only applies in certain narrow circumstances. And there's really um, a new uh, niche industry of plaintiff's lawyers, copyright trolls who have 
uh, software that crawls the internet for this kind of copyrighted stuff that is used without a license. And if you get hit with a lawsuit, it should be just a nuisance. You know, a couple hundred dollar license fee is what it's over, but it winds up costing quite a bit because they'll put you over the barrel once you're in court and it's expensive to make it go away. So that's sort of the, if I could, if anyone could walk away with one piece of advice, don't use content that someone else created unless you have permission. Gotcha. And that's a tough one too, right? Because especially photographs, I know, you know, people are no, no problem gra grabbing stuff off of there. Um, and, you know, what are some, you know, you, you say content without permission. I see all these YouTubers, right, playing videos of uh, like movies and stuff. If you are... If, I mean, that counts, right? Isn't it any permission? I mean, it counts. And again, like I said, sometimes there are exceptions. There are what's called affirmative defenses if you're using it for certain purposes. Um, the law carves out your ability to use something with the understanding that creativity comes from borrowing other people's work. But for the most part, if you're using someone's content to embellish your own um, or just as representative of something you're talking about, yeah, you've got to get a license. Now, just because you're infringing, in other words, using it without a license, doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get sued. In some circles, you know, that kind of sharing is commonplace and understood. It really depends if the person whose content you're using is angry about it and they think they could monetize it, or sometimes it's the flip. They love that whoever is using it is using it because it's, um, you know, getting their message out there, it's amplifying what they want, and therefore they're not going to complain that someone's using it without a license because it's giving them a platform they might not otherwise have. But it's risky, and you should always, when you know for certain that you're focusing on content that doesn't belong to you, you should at least ask the question, is there a risk associated with my use? Of course, yes, yes. And, and that's great advice. And so if anyone has this type of advice and is a content, you know, need someone to look over their stuff, help them with a game plan. That's the kind of things that you help them with, correct? And it's Absolutely. at BH. Absolutely, calls all the time. Hey, can I use this? Hey, this is fair use. Hey, how can you help me figure out if I want to use this and it's not fair use, what can I do to what I'm publishing to put me in a best position to defend my use? Nice, so yeah, definitely cover your butt, especially, uh, is that federal court when uh, that, that type of lawsuit? Yeah, so the Copyright Act is um, a federal statute, and so there is federal jurisdiction. Um, Oof, you know, and that on gets the defense side, we like that because, you know, for the most part, not always, but, you know, people who are appointed to the federal bench tend to be um, incredibly smart people. And uh, so defending, uh, we always prefer to be in uh, federal court if possible, but yes, not when we're defending a troll copyright lawsuit. We don't. We prefer not to be in court at all because it's really just a pain for um, the client. It's, you're going to wind up paying way more money than you would have if you would have just called up whoever owned the content and, and paid the licensee. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy, crazy expensive, I know. I mean, we've got plenty of federal criminal defense attorneys, federal attorneys, and you know, other IP attorneys as clients, and I know their bills are not cheap. <laughs> uh, yeah, but find yourself in litigation, right? You better hope you have insurance. That's what I can say. Yes. Uh, so that's bhhlawfirm.com. So Natalie, today we're going to talk a little bit more about your background and some of your cases. Uh, you know, like we talked about the Rose McGowan one. Um, uh, the Korean, the Korean one's pretty funny. We'll save that for the end. But um, you were you were working with a woman who was being sued by her former employer, which is a pretty big name, correct? 
Uh, that's right. So I represented a woman by the name of Mary Ellen Blair. She was a former executive assistant for Dan Snyder, who is uh, one of the owners of the Washington football team. So he was uh, the subject of an anonymous article that was published in India that made accusations about him that were absolutely untrue um, relating to Jeffrey Epstein. And he filed a defamation case in India, rightfully so, because there were false statements published about him there. And um, what he did was file a series of uh, federal proceedings in the United States seeking discovery, sort of ancillary documents from various people associated with the Washington football team, formerly the Redskins organization, trying to ferret out who, if anyone, may have fed a story like that to uh, the Indian publication in an effort to sully his reputation here in the United States, you know, at the same time that there was ownership disputes going on at the team. Wow. And so tell me a little bit about what happened. How, how, did, how, how did this come about? Um, so the former executive assistant um, was served with, you know, a basically document, federal court document saying you must turn over endless amounts of information and correspondence and text message you have that, you know, touch on various topics, some of which were you know, relevant to the defamation case that was pending in India and some that we felt were ancillary and dealt with her um, communications with the press about other topics, including sort of um, harassment and other um, alleged misconduct that uh, took place at the Washington football team. And so our role when we came in was to help assist um, the respondent, Ms. Blair, in ferreting out, you know, what information they were seeking. And again, she had nothing to do with the article, which was untrue, but didn't come from her and sort out sort of that category of documents they were looking for, anything that she may have done to communicate with India, which in fact there was nothing, from other communications with publications other people associated with the team that were completely irrelevant um, to the ongoing defamation case. So we sort of appeared in federal court initially and made some arguments about why it was overbroad, why it was harassing, and were able to um, negotiate and resolve the matter to both parties' satisfaction. And, you know, that's it's pretty scary, right, when you get that <laughs> when you get that letter, what, what, is it a was it a subpoena that she got? You How know, it's it sort of the or? equivalent of it. It's a really strange, unique federal proceeding. Um, it's a petition for discovery in a foreign case, but it would sort of appear like a subpoena. In other words, it's a legal document that gets served on you that says you got to turn over all this stuff. So you're absolutely right. A regular person walking around who gets served, you know, with federal court papers saying you basically have to you know, cut open your phone and computer and dump everything out and turn it over is really terrifying, especially when you know, you know, the person seeking it is, has a lot of resources and a lot of, um, you know, access to the media um, can be pretty scary. So I feel those are the kind of cases I like to involve, get involved in when there's somebody who is facing litigation that they don't have the sort of resources or expertise to defend and to come in and sort of they can walk away after having worked with me and exhale, you know, saying, oh, wow, I was, you know, those were some dark times when I was facing um, that litigation. I didn't know what to do. I felt like I was, you know, outmanned, outgunned, outresourced, and you were able to come in and help 
basically tamp down the scope of the litigation, um, assert some arguments, you know, protecting them usually on First Amendment grounds. In other words, to the extent she was exercising free speech rights and speaking out to others aside from India, which she didn't do, we were able to make some arguments that helped in the negotiations to really narrow the scope of what was being sought and um, reach an agreement. And in that type of area, like if things would have gone awry for her and she just didn't call an attorney, what are the things that could have happened to her? Uh, in all likelihood, there would have been an order entered, you know, basically requiring her to turn over all that stuff subject to a criminal contempt. In other words, if she hadn't cooperated, then she would be in violation of a court order and would be in a contempt of court. And my guess is, in, faced with a, in a position like that, a regular person would say, I don't want to be in contempt. Here you go. Whatever you're asking for, here's my computer, here's my phone, take what you want and just leave me alone. And that would have left her in a vulnerable position, having given access and turned over a lot of like personal content and communications that arguably are an extraordinary overreach for what you know the petitioning party was entitled to. Pretty much our entire lives are in those communications, aren't they? It's true, and that's why you know it's so important when um, you know somebody is in a position where they're being asked, requested, forced, ordered to turn content over that may have either personal privacy protections or other kinds of protections. If you're a member of the media and you're a reporter and you've got sources who you're talking to, or you've got you know communications or documents that were given to you by a source, that stuff is highly, highly sensitive and it's protected. And um, if you don't have the right counsel to sort of advise you about you know what you're entitled to keep private and what you have to give up, um, you could wind up, you know, damaging a lot of your relationships and exposing content and information about yourself and those who are important to you, you know, unnecessarily. Now, uh, you don't have to answer this, but this is pretty timely right now because we're there, there's a bit of a contempt of co Congress case going on, isn't there? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's an interesting test. Now, it's a different system of rules, right? If they were in federal yeah. court and Mr. Bannon was on the receiving end of a federal court subpoena, there'd be no question about whether, you know, he was in contempt. But these, these are different proceedings before Congress. But, you know, obviously, I, I, it's interesting because I'm often in the camp of you shouldn't be forced to turn things over. But I don't know that his his reason for holding back and not uh, participating is not rooted in the First Amendment, as far as I can tell. So uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, I, 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 my, my, my allegiances are, are, are perhaps different in a situation <laughs> like that. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, and I won't go too d deep down that political route, but it, it's, it's interesting because it's one of those things we don't think about a whole lot. But now it's information is so much more. I mean, like if handing over your record your phone records 30 years ago didn't mean anything it was like you just knew who people called right <laughs> that was it it's, now it's sort of you know a web that can be tied to so many other things and can sort of help someone piece together so much private information about you and the people that you're connected with that it's you know it's, there's a lot of risk involved and you know person somebody's personal privacy so it's um it's really important and i also think too we're in a culture right now where Forcing someone to turn over their records is a really, um, you know, it's a powerful form of retaliation. If you're angry at somebody, if you want to shut them up or make them stop talking about you, or you know that, you know, as a form almost of a, an extortion, hey, you said something about me, I know you've got something to say about me, I'm going to force you to stop by 
basically intimidating you through litigation and threatening you with having to turn over information. And so I think it's, it's so important when someone is in a position like that where someone is retaliating against them, especially for something they've um, spoken out about, that they have counsel who can assist and point out to the court that that's what's going on, that this isn't just, you know, this isn't a real defamation lawsuit. The person who's suing hasn't really had their reputation damaged. They're suing to try and shut the person up because they know that the speaker has a lot of bad things to say about them, and they're hoping that if they, um, you know, flex their muscle, that the speaker will disappear. It's, yeah, it's really interesting. You know, and if, if you all haven't checked it out, we did an episode with Michael Elkins where an employer actually hacked into one of the employees' emails and was they found out later on and was doing the exact same thing. Um, and it's, it's amazing because it's scary. And especially if you're the small person, it's scary. Um, uh, but go, moving forward, you know, not a small per- person, Rose McGowan, you you worked with her. Tell me a little about that that story. It's really really interesting. Sure. So you know most people are familiar with Rose. She's outspoken um, activist, actress, and she was um, identified as one of the silence breakers, one of the first person to come forward and directly accuse Harvey Weinstein of sexual assault. Um, people are familiar uh, with her, you know, and her bravery in speaking out in that way. She. Um, was sued by one of these um, celebrity lawyer types. His name is Jose Baez. People may have heard of him. He represented Casey Anthony, who was mm-hmm. um, uh, on trial for murdering her daughter but was acquitted. Uh, Rose had hired him in connection with a matter that she was involved in, and that she did that that matter was being resolved. But while uh, Rose McGowan was still his client. Mr. Baez um, filed a motion to join the defense team of Harvey Weinstein in the rape case that was pending in New York and without you know, asking Rose or, frankly, without telling her that his plans were to join the defense team in an unrelated to her particular situation with Harvey Weinstein, but someone obviously, to whom she was extraordinarily adverse. And once she learned of that, she took to social media and gave a few interviews and, um, you know, referenced his behavior and suggested that he had a conflict of interest. And she also um, referred to it as fuckery. And uh, one of my favorite uh, legal opinions of all time will be the poor Cook County judge I was uh, in front of who had to say something to the effect of, I'm not sure exactly what fuckery is, but I can tell you that it's First Amendment, First Amendment protected opinion because it cannot be proven true or false. So we came in basically uh, to defend Rose from the defamation allegations uh, <laughs> put forward by Mr. Baez, suggesting that her claims once she learned of his decision to, uh, to work for Weinstein were defamatory. Our position was a, but they were they were her opinion. She knew what she knew about him that he was her lawyer and that she was quote going that he was going to work for the other side and so she was entitled to express her opinion uh, about what that was and how she felt about it. And we also uh, discovered that in the actual proceedings in New York, where uh, Mr. Baez had filed a motion to uh, become counsel, the, the judge who was presiding over those proceedings acknowledged that in fact there would be a conflict 
in the event that Rose was called as a, as a witness in that case, that there would be a conflict of interest and that Mr. Bias wouldn't be in a position to cross-examine her if she was also his client. And so the fact that there was a grain of truth in the fact that there was um, a conflict in the nature of what was going on also, I think, helped our case. But at the end of the day, it was the First Amendment protected opinion argument that, that carried the day, and that case was dismissed. And Bias, who's you know traditionally a fairly aggressive guy, did not appeal. So that was a, that was a nice victory. Yeah, and I mean, he's right down the street from us here in Orlando. Oh, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> right, yeah, you, I forgot about that. Yeah, Casey Anthony was everything for a while. Um, and how many times did you get to say the word fuckery during that? Oh, <laughs> as many times as anyone. Actually, I would say most lawyers don't get many opportunities to say fuckery, but I got to write it in a legal brief and I believe argue it. Um, it was still it was during the pandemic, so it was, a, it was not an in-person court argument. So I didn't utter it in the hallowed halls of the Cook County Circuit Court, but I did uh, you know, get to say it in front of the judge. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and did you have to do research about the word? Yeah, there's a concept in defamation law um, called rhetorical hyperbole. And frankly, fuckery is sort of the perfect example of rhetorical hyperbole. It's when someone uses words that you know don't have a definite meaning and are definitely used to be inflammatory and to express sort of strong opinion, fiery rhetoric. And traditionally, those kinds of words, rhetorical hyperbole, are protected just for the reason that the judge in Cook County uh, ruled, which is that you can't prove them true or false. And to be defamatory, something must both be false and damaging to someone's reputation. And if there is no clear definition to whatever insult you're uh, throwing at someone, then you can't be held liable. That's thankfully protected speech. Yeah, and I mean, that can be used as a positive word. <laughs> Absolutely. And the best thing is, even if it's not, it doesn't matter because it's uh, everybody knows that people, you know, scream out things like fuckery when they're angry at somebody else. And the idea of the First Amendment is to allow sort of the discourse of ideas. And if people disagree, you're allowed to get heated and angry and scream things you don't really mean. Because, and the policy is that that fosters, you know, communication, that fosters a search for the truth, and that that's sort of one of the foundations of democracy is allowing people to sort of scream back and forth about the things they believe in yes love it that's a really interesting crazy story and i, I <laughs> and that's fantastic um and good job good job well, because you. yeah there i mean definitely deserves to be able to say there's fuckery there right so uh, feel free, march around, <laughs> tell, you can feel free at least in chicago to uh walk around and refer to anything <laughs> anyone does as fuckery <laughs> And at least be protected uh, from a defamation claim, if not getting punched in the face. That I don't know. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, that yeah, that's two different type types of law. Um, <laughs> so finally, I, I love this crazy story. It's it's interesting. It, it's it's kind of bizarre. Uh, but tell me a little bit about why why you're working with this Korean company. Sure. Well, I, uh, I actually have a background in history in East Asia. I um, studied Japanese as undergrad. I spent a lot of time in Japan. I taught in Japan. Oh, awesome. So it's sort of um, my side hustle, if you were the first firm I worked at, uh, at a law school specialized in representing wholly owned Japanese subsidiaries here. So I always have had an affinity for, you know, finding, since, since I moved on from, from that firm, I always like to find cases or clients that have some connection to East Asia because, 
you know, it's uh, sort of reminiscent for me and, you know, culturally I have some familiarity with uh, how dispute resolution works in those cultures. So by coincidence, um, at my prior firm, we uh, got a case, and this was through an insurance company that insured um, a local Korean language publication. And based on my sort of affiliation with East Asia, I was put on this particular case, and it was a copyright case. The publication had allegedly taken photographs of, um, you know, various products that were being advertised without licensing the photos, and the owner of the photos got furious and sued them for uh, for copyright infringement and was looking a little tough because the photos looked like they were the same photos. There was an argument that the copyright registration notation had been removed, which is sort of an escalated penalty if you've done that. And so we prepared uh, for the initial meeting with the clients, and I did all the research and tracked all the different images that were allegedly used and, you know, were sort of going to present a strategy to the client about how we might resolve what was, um, you know, a little bit of a nerve-wracking case because there didn't appear to be a ton of defenses available. And it happened to be January-ish in Chicago, and the client happened to be far out in the suburbs. So by it was a planes, trains, and automobiles type of day where through a giant blizzard, we took a cab to the train station, took the train out, tried to get another cab in the suburbs, and, you know, snowy extended journey. We finally arrived, you know, shook the snow from our collars, waited in the ante room for um, the chairman of the publication to sort of meet with us and we could present our strategy. Finally, we were let in and we're sitting quietly and there was some silence. His back was to us in an old-fashioned leather chair and he swiveled around and sort of cleared my throat and prepared to give our strategy. He looked at us and said, make it go away. And then he sort of swiveled back around, and that was it. <laughs> and I love that story only because I feel like it's such a great lesson in the practice of law. You know, law students and, like, new associates work so hard to study and learn everything and come up with a strategy and do your research. And what you sometimes fail to realize is, of course, that is always important to do, and you must always be prepared. But... Sometimes, um, especially in litigation, even the best preparation doesn't prepare you for the actual client interaction and what they really want. So uh, you just you have to to, to learn to, to roll with the punches and also to sort of respond to what a client wants you to do. He didn't want to hear the story. He didn't want to know the song and dance. He was not at all interested in the copyright act. He just wanted the case to go away. And thankfully, we did eventually make it go away, but uh, maybe it might have taken a little longer than he had hoped. <laughs> yes i mean i think that's a good point too just about clients in general right it's like you know we just don't know you got what they really want and what we are going to do are two different things uh that that's fantastic uh well natalie these have been amazing stories once again you're at bhhlawfirm.com if anyone wants to follow you out there Where's the best place to follow you personally? Um, you know, you can check out our website, and we're on LinkedIn, which is not that interesting, but we do put cool stuff that we do up there. We've got news and stories on our website, and I am personally on Twitter. The stuff that I express on Twitter are my own opinions and thoughts, not affiliated with the firm, but if you want to check out um, some of that content, feel free. Awesome. We'll put that links in the show notes. Natalie, thanks so much for being on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. And I look forward to listening to some of the other pieces you do. Awesome. Thank you. And thanks for 
taking Natalie and I on this adventure. This has been Iron Garlic and True Law Stories. True Law Stories has been brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com. Testimonials stink. No one wants to watch a testimonial or read a case study. You need video case stories for your business. Go to VideoCaseStory.com to learn more.